You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello, friends, and you are listening. I was going to say, and welcome. Welcome. You are listening to the Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today, the great Andy Moskowitz, is joining us. Uh, hi. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I had no, I had no intro. I, I was setting it up like I had a cool intro, and that was it. Oh, that was great. Welcome. Uh, thanks. You said great. So, yeah. 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 Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure, man. You've been improvising seven years. Awesome. Uh, and seven years in April. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, you started out in comedy sports? Yeah, comedy sports in Philadelphia and then Philly Improv Theater. Yeah. Did that for three years and then moved to New York 2012. Now you perform with Ariana Grande yeah. at Megawatt. Yeah. Uh, uh, you have an awesome job that we can't talk about. <laughs> yeah. You can say what it is. You work at the at uh, the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I do, yeah, and in, I'm in a, a prominent position, researcher. You are a researcher at Stephen Colbert. Mm-hmm. So seven years from Comedy Sports Philly to researcher at Stephen Colbert, pretty good. That's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah. Um, let's begin with Philadelphia. Sure. Uh, how'd you get into comedy sports? Uh, was that was that the first? Was that your first exposure to performing? Uh, yeah. Um, I, what well, all started, it was, I was like 27 and I was on, I was looking for something to do because I, when I was, I went to Johns Hopkins and I majored in film and creative writing and I became sort of like a, I, I sort of just fell into like marketing writing, um, cause it paid, um, but didn't love it, wanted something creative. So I read this book, uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm which is about thinking without thinking, like the benefits of just making snap decisions. So there's a big chapter about improv. And I was like, I was in Jamaica with my, with my family, and I, I was like, this book is really speaking to me. I think I would be really good at improv. So I, when I got back to Philly, I Googled improv classes. And at the, t- at the time, I didn't, I was I didn't want to take comedy sports classes because I was just like, well, that's just like, whose line is it anyway? And I'm over that. Comedy sports they have a Z in their name too, right? It's comedy sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. It, no knock to comedy sports. I've seen it and it's great, but that that's a, a thing for me. I was like, oh, you got a Z instead of an S. Nah, no thanks. Well, and their their our phone number was like one eight six six, like five two laugh. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. It, it, I don't know, people like that, I guess. So Well, if you look at any improv book, there were not many improv books published before like the modern era, the last like five years. But uh, uh any of the ones that are like improv games or like improv for life or improv like whatever it is, every single one of them is like neon green and the font to improv is all like goofy and cartoonish and everybody's wearing like uniforms on the cover and, and having like wigs and stuff like that. Like there's this kind of like bouncy, silly, ridiculous yeah. zany is like always what's being projected by everything. Yeah. I, I think my my even my copy of Truth and Comedy is like it has the worst cover. It's like in Comic Sans or something. It's it's like three different fonts. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. It which is so funny because it, it like totally undercuts the message of that book. 
Yeah. The, whole, the whole thing of that book is to not act that way. Yeah. But then the cover just advertises itself as like the goofiest thing. Yeah. Well, I bought it. So it looked really fun. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So we, so I took a class with Philly Improv Theater because I wanted to do long form. But ha- and I took it with this amazing woman, Ali Sewell, who is a Philadelphia improviser and very funny and very nice. And she, halfway through our level one class, she said comedy sports was having auditions. Like, you should come out and just get some experience. Who knows? So that was my attitude. Um, and I went out and I got on, I got cast. It was crazy. So I was like, hmm, I think I found something I'm really good at. So um, that, that's, this was about 2009 and uh, about, but I still wanted to do long form. So I kept taking classes at Philly Improv Theater and I eventually got cast on a team like in September of that year. And then I was like, cool, great. I have everything I want. So I was performing nonstop. Um, that's like the one, that's the one advantage I think I had over a lot of other people when I moved to New York. Do you hear like yeah, there's, there's singing? There's a there's a rehearsal going on in one of the adjacent rooms, oh. and they seem to just be singing a song endlessly. Uh, wow! Yeah, it's kind of pretty. It's life in an improv uh, training center. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's fair. It it just I, if, every time I'm here, it, it makes me think of like Pee Wee's Big Adventure when he's on the lot at Warner Brothers, and it's just like people walking around in like in uh, uh, like suits of armor. <laughs> Or, like, they're filming, like, the Twisted Sister music video next door. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's more fun. There were a bunch of kids auditioning here for something the other day, and that was kind of fun. Uh, uh, it was, like, the Smart Kids audition or something. Nice. Nice. They were smart smart kids? Well, I don't know if they were. Yeah, I guess you have to be smart to audition to be a smart kid. Yeah. Like, you can't be a dumb kid and, and get away with appearing smart. I guess, Unless you're, like, a dumb, cunning kid. Mm-hmm. You're, like, the Machiavelli of kids, but a little dumb, too. Uh-huh. Like, you have one skill. And that's- one- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Manipulating people's perception of you. Yeah. You're brilliant at that. But everything else is just, like, you have no attention span. This is opening up a whole philosophical discussion about whether that's the same thing as someone who actually was the thing. Um, Arguably. Right. Right. It's like a robot that, like, is programmed to have feelings. Are they real feelings? Uh, I don't know. I say Yes. I, yeah, I'm never going to trust a child again. <laughs> um, what was I talking about? You were performing all the time. It oh, an all the time, all the time. Um, yeah, and it was a huge advantage because I just got comfortable being on stage. Um, uh, but, well, I don't know. I had, I had some dark years. Um, this, this, is, this, is, this is dark. Um, this is like my, if this were my behind the music uh, a documentary like this is when the sad music would start yeah um but what happened was i um i was very insecure uh, when i started because everybody in comedy sports most of them were professional actors um and i definitely i had no acting training um so when this is uh, what happened was i got uh, hit by a car not too severely um but kind of like really like they fractured my knee um so the doctor gave me like pain medicine and um I was taking it for like two weeks maybe, but I started like performing while like taking pain meds and um, I was, it made me really funny, like mm. no doubt. Um, but like gradually as like things went on, like it started to get like less and less like useful mm-hmm. to me because um, it would just dull my, it would 
ultimately would dull my instincts and uh, make it harder to listen and do all this, you know, all these really bad things. Um, what, what was the initial, like, what, what about it made you find it to begin with? Was it like lowered inhibition? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and no fear. Yeah. Um, and that was really, really helpful for a long time um, because it got rid of everything that I, everything that like would, I felt like was holding me back. But then when I would like not have any drugs and I would go to perform, it was like I was standing naked in the wind. I was mm-hmm. so, it was like, it's just, cla- it's, it's a classic, like it's a classic thing. Um, and uh, so, uh, but eventually I just, you know, eventually I just stopped um, because I, I was just like, I, I, you know, A, I can't keep doing this. B, um, you know, well, I, <laughs> I had a seizure from an overdose mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, well, this is probably like, like all these like little signs were like starting to like, you know, like that I couldn't deny as a rational person. Uh, so eventually I, um, uh, I went to, well, first I went to NA, then I went to AA cause, cause NA is Narcotics Anonymous. Yeah. Okay. But it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's, if you go to NA, like you meet a lot of people who are, um, just like hardcore heroin or coke addicts and it was like harder to relate you know because I was a functioning adult mm-hmm. um, so I eventually went to AA um, for like six months I stopped drinking for like two years I drink now but not that much um, alcohol was never a problem for me um, even when I was like in the throes of major addiction I had a bottle of vodka in my freezer for like a year mm-hmm. I, just, I just I don't if it's genetic I think it might be because I just don't have it. Like I don't have that gene. Yeah. Um, like my dad's had addiction issues, but never alcohol. So I don't know. I well, think- were were you at the point of like were you addicted or or were you recognizing that addiction was starting? Um, I was addic- addicted. Yeah. Yeah. I because I would take it just to go to work. Okay. Like it got to that point. So you just couldn't function. I without yes. it. Yes. Were I- you able to function on the pills? Um, yeah, well, yes, on, you know, I mean, I was able to, I fell asleep at work once, that uh-huh. wasn't cool. Yeah. Um, I was never, I was never an inappropriate person. Mm-hmm. I just never, I would never go out and say really shitty things to people or like grab people or touch people. Like I, some people are like that when they're fucked up, mm-hmm. but I, I never was. Mine was just like, um, it was just like a slow gradual loss of um I don't know how to phrase it it was just uh people knew things people knew that I was something was wrong with me but it was never pronounced enough that somebody felt the need to say something Mm -hmm. but it was like always like right on that line Mm -hmm. you know and I think I'm smart I think like I'm smart and I know like I know how to not cross that line and in some ways, I wish I had been a little stupider because I might have gotten help earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, happy ending is that I stopped when I got to New York. I stopped all that, and um, when I started performing here, uh, so, like sober, I was like I was so much better. Immediately, like that was my thing. Like going through AA, I was like, well, am I not going to be as good? I'm not going to be as funny anymore. I'm just never going to make it. Um, and uh, I would perform, and I would not like I would not like what I was doing as much, um, and I would be convinced that like, well, this is it, like, I'm done. And eventually, that just 
like I just got over that mm-hmm. and I broke through that and I just know I'm so much better now than I was before. Well, I remember having an interview with Armando once where he was talking about um, like having a drink before a show and and uh, he was like, you know, it, it it is misleading because you kind of feel that taking the edge off frees you to be able to have fun and relax. But it's exactly that thing that you, you kind of need that edge. Like part of the excitement of performing and, and different people seem to experience that edge in different ways or to different degrees. And there are some people who I guess don't, they just seem perfectly comfortable and, and at peace with themselves. But part of, part of the pleasure in performing is in knowing that you can confront that edginess and knowing mm-hmm. that you can confront those nerves and still be operative. Yeah. Knowing that that's part of your equipment and that it's there for a specific function and it, it, it in a way is keeping you honest and alert. Uh, um, and, and in a way, it's also kind of like a, a, a bell going off, letting you know that you're in, in the in the range of something that's important to you. And, and it, it keeps you having to be thoughtful about it. Yeah, You can go too far with that and that edge can become so strong that it inhibits you completely. Um, but the danger in dulling that edge is diminishing returns that at first what you get in freedom you lose in the ability to cope at all by having that insecurity and insecurity is just kind of par for the course i mean i guess for anything but but certainly on stage where you're being scrutinized all the time yeah it it also um i think like i think there's a lot of value in being vulnerable Mm -hmm. on stage um like and there are times on stage where I will make myself like almost cartoonishly vulnerable, mm-hmm. um, and I love doing that. I love it, and I never would have known that there was st- strength or power in doing that had I been um, had I been high because it, it, like now like I've been able to do things I was scared to do before and then get to the point where I realized like, Oh, this totally works. Um, I don't have to be afraid of this thing anymore. Um, I, uh, like there's a lot of, like, I feel like a lot of performing for me lately has been like, um, like overcoming the feeling of being ashamed of mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. um, which I love. It's such a great feeling. Um, like if I, I'll frequently do something that I'm expecting to get a laugh or some kind of response and I feel it like land with a thud. And um, now I just like, I'll just keep keep doing it, you know? I'll keep going for that thing, um, even if I know it's kind of stupid. Um, and uh, And I get this, like, I can feel this, I get this expression on my face. It's, this isn't going to work over a podcast, but... It's like <laughs> kind of like a slightly amused, uh, 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 slightly cynical look in your eye. You're mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, so I'm describing your face now to the listeners. It looks as if you've momentarily detached from the move and you're now amused by what you see. Mm-hmm. And now you're putting yourself back into that move again. Yeah. And that just in doing that, I think like that, that just charges it up because I think, I mean, I guess it's a little like meta. It's, I guess it's a little cheap, but I, I kind of don't care. Um, I just, you know, I want the audience to know that like I'm okay with myself right now, yeah. you know, and uh, uh, we can keep going. Um, yeah. And it's something I've discovered probably in the last year that I, I just love. I love when it happens. Well, I think it's a technique thing too, because like, um, 
you know, you could say that that you don't want to anticipate an audience's reaction to what you're going to do, and 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 I think that that's a quasi honest thing because you know you find that when you do kind of like have these expectations of like this is going to kill and then it doesn't you can kind of be trapped in a scene sometimes like some some of the best moves come out when you're just kind of doing what's logical for your character rather than what you're doing when you're doing the you know the 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 kind of anticipated thing yeah but realistically the other part of it is you are hoping for people to laugh. You're aiming for people to laugh. You're putting on a comedy show for people. And it is kind of in the back of your mind that like, okay, this is going to hit. And so like there's a technique thing to it that you go for it and it doesn't hit. And then you go for it again. And, and in the act of you pursuing that thing, that becomes you taking ownership for that choice and really embracing it. And, and it, you know, it does become funnier over time because we see, it's not it's not even like the stubbornness of the performer it's just the thing of like oh, okay that's their choice that wasn't just a one off joke thing yeah. they're they're sticking to that yeah. and there's something exciting about watching people with a little bit of like eh, fuck you attitude not in a jerk way but like i'm going to do this i'm going to i'm going to play this through whether it's working or not there's obviously you see people do that in a real jerk way yeah. where where it's completely ignoring that it doesn't fit this scene or this game, you know, it's just like, just like, uh, uh, wedging this thing in, but when it's not wedging in, that can be such a powerful technical choice to make. Yeah. It's ownership. It's pride. Yeah. It is pride. It, it, yeah. It's pride. It's the opposite of shame, you know? So, um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't like, like that white heat of embarrassment that used to come over me a lot. Like it doesn't anymore. And I don't mind being dumb. I, I used to want to be the cool, the cool smart guy that always just said the right thing. Like, like I would watch shows and I would all, I could always pick that guy out and be like, I want to be him. And like, I don't like I've grown, like I don't want to be him anymore. Mm. Not that he isn't cool and smart and attractive, but I would rather be the person that, um, I don't know. Like when I watch shows, um, comedy shows, there's a lot of, a lot of jokes that to me um, are funny, but re- require like a, a hair too much thinking for me to truly enjoy. Mm-hmm. And the jokes that make me laugh, um, that just hit me in the gut, are um, not dumb, not 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 smart, but dumb. Like I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Um, and that's like that's the sweet spot for me. I just I want it to hit me like almost like I just don't have to think about it at all. Yeah. Um, and I've been rewatching old Simpsons episodes, which is what got me into comedy, like so many other people. But uh, it's just such a great show, and um, that's what a lot of the best jokes are. Like they're just, um, they're smart, dumb, um, yeah, just. Mm. It's one of my favorite things about uh, improvising that you're watching people use their brain to like their fullest capacity uh, uh, to make the most out of the stupidest possible offer. Yeah. Like you're using all of your smarts to, to give birth to this thing that's just completely moronic. Yeah. There's something exciting about like uh, uh, um, the superfluous way that we're able to use our intelligence like that, that I, I love. Uh-huh. It, you know, it, it takes everything in you to craft the stupidest joke in the world for, yeah. no, for no reason uh-huh. other than it, it's amusing to watch the stupidity. Um, I wrote a joke that was rejected 
by the show that I don't work for. Um, but it was, um, oh my God, wait, I can't even start thinking. Um, Chris Pine, Thora Birch, and Willow Smith shall be combined into a single celebrity named Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> um, and that, that took like two hours to yeah. write, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, uh, it's great. Yeah. It's, it's so, I, I mean, I'm sorry. My joke's great. I can say that, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just so dumb. Um, you had a character in a, in a baby shoes show one time and I'm, I'm going to get this completely wrong, but maybe you can remind me of what it was, where it was like your hands were ketchup bottles or your hands were... Oh, yeah. Um, we had all been cursed by... We were at work, and we had all been cursed by this gypsy. Um, <laughs> it was really funny. It was, that, I wrote that sketch. Um, that was uh, based on Thinner. The, yeah, yeah, Stephen King. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, I love, like, that the, that kind of, like, Stephen Kingy like, um, like that, Needful Things. Mm-hmm. Um I just, I don't know why I love that stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, this was like, people were at a, three guys and their boss were at a work retreat and they'd all, or they'd all come back from the work retreat and they'd all gotten like totally wasted. And slowly it's revealed one by one that on their way back, each one of them had individually killed a different child (laughs) of this gypsy woman played by, uh, Amanda Zeller. Totally by accident, right? Yeah, totally by accident. They were just all drunk. And she had like six kids that were just wandering in the road. Um, (laughs) So we all had different curses that were based on puns. Uh, And mine was, I was like, oh, I can't hold my liquor. I'm sorry. And she cursed me so that my, she was like, hold your liquor. And then my alcohol bottles, beer bottles grew out of my hands. Right. Um, And then I, the joke we added in rehearsal was that I like just was like, took a sip to see if there was a beer and it was, it was just blood. <laughs> yeah. It was stark. Um, and then there was another one. Alex added this thing where there was another point where I just like later on when you'd forgotten about that, I like clinked them together and took a swig again, forgetting that there was blood and yeah, it hit the second time too. That was a really fun sketch. It was a really, yeah. Yeah. Um, and everything, it was like the perfect combination of sheer stupidity and, and like horror story. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. That's what I was totally going for. Yeah. Cause um, there was something like horribly visceral about drinking your own body fluids and poisoning yourself with it. And then like constantly forgetting about that. Cause you just want to be so bad. Yeah. It's really fucked up. Yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah, that's, that sketch, um, that went through like I, all my sketches go through like eight eight drafts like I I'm totally I don't I would I was the guy who would write one sketch for one every show Mm -hmm. because I would just work on it over and over again I'm really like a quality over quantity type of person yeah um once I find a a line I think I can walk on I'll just like work on it forever um sometimes to excess sometimes Alex had to be like stop are you you like a control freak um perfectionist yeah I'm a perfectionist uh with my own work, yeah. Um, I don't think I'm... Yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, I just want it to be good. But but the thing is, like, I, I am willing to... If I'm in the room and something doesn't land, like, I, I'm like, okay, it sucks. Like, let's find something else. Like, yeah. I'm totally open. Like, I'm open to what the group consensus is because I, b- I believe in that. Yeah. Um, so, um, 
we did another sketch, we think. Um, yeah, I, we did another sketch where I, I probably did like nine drafts of, um, where I was like playing this, uh, I was playing a real person. Um, the, he's an acting, uh, William Esper. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually went to the drama bookshop and just, he happened to be giving a talk downstairs mm-hmm. and I, seems like a nice guy, but he also, it just, it had that air of like, you know, when, when I see people, when like acting luminaries talk, there's just a cult of personality around them. Yeah. Just, it's just always there. And he, he, it's not, he, it's not anything he said. It's just the way that the people in the audience were responding to him. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I read his book and, uh, I know a lot of people who like love his book. They feel like it changed their life, yeah. you know? Um, but I, I didn't enjoy it. And, and part of it for me was just like, oh, it's, it, it's like making things too important in mm-hmm. a way. Mm-hmm. It's making a big deal out of things that shouldn't be a big deal. I, I mean, practically speaking, as an actor, as a performer, if you're approaching this as if it's a real accomplishment that you, whatever, yeah. it, it, you know, uh, uh, stuck to your task while the person entered the room or something, it's like you're making a much, much bigger deal out of something that can you can act very well with a casual, okay, attitude totally so so i think that that sense of like oh this guy's personality is so strong and people really take to that to the intensity and the passion that kind of comes through in the book in a way that i probably really liked when i was in college and and probably have a little less tolerance for now yeah i'm sure he's a great teacher people love him yeah he he, he, i mean i i agree in college i would get wrapped up in that that that's kind of like i would read things by harold bloom and Mm -hmm. i'd be like this man is knows Everything there is to know. And let's and, be honest, how much of that uh, secretly were you thinking, I have no idea what Harold Bloom is talking about right now? Um, uh, probably, I probably 25% yeah. understood and yeah. Yeah, that was a, yeah. yeah, but that 25% is awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. Um, um, but it's then sometimes, but then he's the kind of guy who makes lists, you mm-hmm. know, about like his greatest. And I, I just think that's a really, um, you know, jejun way to respond to literature mm-hmm. just say rank rankings um anyway uh <laughs> uh so um but the sketch you know uh, william esper talked about empathy a lot he's like well you know when you act like it, it's a measure of your empathy you know which makes it even the high stakes even higher like if you can't succeed at this you're not an empathetic person i just it was really so i wrote this sketch where he's wrote this book called the actor's empathy and um he's taking questions from the audience and they're having to play these characters like on Law and Order who are just like serial rapists and these like <laughs> awful. And they're like, well, how do we do it? And he just c- comes up with these like ridiculous ways to try to like graft what they're experiencing onto this character. Like, um, it was like a guy who like stole Jolly Ranchers from an end table. And, you know, but that's why he's like a rapist because, you know, it's like carnal, carnal pleasure. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're not supposed to do that. I don't know. It's worded much better in the sketch. I'm <laughs> having trouble. But uh, yeah, so that, that was really fun. Um, and that went through nine drafts, nine drafts of just like I, w- I will read over just to eliminate two or three unnecessary words. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's like an obsessive thing. Um, and like now that I'm uh, writing jokes at work every now and then, um, it's the same thing. I just like, it's just labor, labor, labor. But yeah. I, I uh, it's good. It's a good feeling. Um, it's something I'm happy to work at. I want to get back to that in a second, but I, I want to go back for a moment and talk about Stephen King. Yeah. Um, just because it seems like your sensibility as a comedian is in that sort of 
overlap between uh, I'm kind of dark and uh, um, dark and stupid and vulnerable, like all in kind of like a package together. Mm. Um, uh, Would that be a fair assessment? Sure. Yeah, I like it. It's interesting how how um, like this is one one of the one reason why I find stupidity to be one of the higher values um, because there's something about it that sort of flies in the face of our vulnerability and our fears. I, I think that like horror and comedy have a really strong overlap in that they're both all about tension. They're both extremely visceral when they both work really well. They work automatically. They bypass, they bypass your kind of critical appreciation and yeah. you just go right into you're afraid or a little bit nauseous or you're laughing and, 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 um, and, and you can't control it. Yeah. But they're also like, horror is so much about exposure and vulnerability and, and that kind of like sickening feeling of no matter what we're kind of living in a bubble that makes us think that we're not extremely vulnerable when in fact, you know, we're going to be scattered to the four winds. Yeah. And, and there's something about that overlay where you're able to channel that context and channel that, that fear and that disgust. And then in the midst of it, putting all of your attention on like stupidity, stupid behavior, the stupidest thing. And there's something about like, there's a little bit of an attitude in the face of death and, and, and pain and horror of just like, ah, fuck it. That like, I I find something kind of like, um, uplifting about that. Yeah. Like if you've ever been really sick or, 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 or had something like, unfortunately really bad happened to you and, and you're in like a really heavy place and then you put on the TV and, and you know, there's a comic who, who says something that makes you laugh. There's something in that moment when you're laughing where, where you feel like there's hope yet. Yeah. I have a dark story uh, that relates to this, which is that um, when my, uh, grand- my grandfather was dying, uh, we were all in Florida and um, uh, he was on his deathbed. He was dying at home. And uh, he uh, was, like, we didn't know that he was going to die while we were still there, but he did. Um, and it was, an inc- we were, there was a nurse, one nurse there, like a home care nurse. And uh, he was, uh, he had like an, um, a pulse thing uh, attached to his finger and it showed, you know, just in digital readout what his pulse was. And uh, it was going up and down and up and down. And the nurse just was like, that's really bad. Um, so she, I think she called someone to come, but it was like too late. And he kind of like seized up and we were like holding him. And then I was holding him and p- people were yelling. I don't really know what happened. But um, then I just looked at the pulse thing and it said zero. And I was like, okay, he's dead. Um, and it was like super super intense as I'm sure you can imagine. And, um, there were these geese like out on the, his lawn and it was just, it was Florida. Um, and, uh, (laughs) there's this one goose that would always, it was like, well, you had to kind of stay away from them because they weren't like friendly geese. Um, geese are never friendly. No, they're not. There's no such thing as a friendly goose. Yeah. In fact, they're the worst. I don't know why they're allowed to live near humans. Yeah, they're um, kind of fuckers. Yeah. Well, the um, front door was open, and the uh, this goose was just 
um, right, like it wasn't like the screen door was closed, but it was sitting on the porch, and I saw it, and I just watched it take a shit. It was right out there, and um, it, it was so. And then it just waddled off, mm-hmm. and it was so. Like it was so stupid. It was just. It just was so dumb, um, and funny. And I don't think I was. I didn't laugh at the time, but I was almost like, "Am I really seeing this?" Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. It, it was just. It just had a lot of layers to it because, um, you know, my grand. Like when you die, you shit. Like that's just that just happens. Right. So so you know we smelled that and um, yeah. And uh, I don't. I don't really know how to interpret it, but it was one of those. Perfect moments because I I knew what I was seeing was funny. I was just like, "This is funny." The goose is shitting on the porch, um, but I, uh, yeah, I don't know if that informed who I am in some way. Um, but I don't know. Well, there's something to like. You know, it's interesting you talk about how like we don't talk about your shit when you die. I remember I that was in in the book The Godfather. I read The Godfather when oh. I was like twelve or something. You know. And uh, have you read The Godfather? No. They describe people shitting their pants when they die like a hundred goddamn times in that book. <laughs> it, it, like every time somebody's killed, he goes out of his way to describe how they shit their pants. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, I'm sorry. I have a side, side thing too. I just recently read Star Trek The Motion Picture, the novel by Gene Roddenberry. The, so the movie, the novelization of the film? The novelization of the film, wow. written by Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. Any good? No. Um, uh, but, like, he describes a lot of boners in the book. There's, there's what? Have you seen Star Trek The Motion Picture? I don't, I can't remember. All right. There's a there's a, a woman on the crew who's a Delton. She's from a race that's, like, a sexually advanced race, and, like, human beings have to be careful around her. So, like, in the book, every time she walks into a room, he goes out of his way to describe all the boners that everybody on the bridge has. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Gene Roddenberry. Just a real, see, there's that, there's that. Late show mentality. There's that find a joke. And let's, we'll get back to that oh, in just thanks. a second. Um, oh, but no, it, it's interesting that like you, you bring that up. Cause I remember that was a real shock when I read the Godfather of like, Oh, you shit when you die. Mm-hmm. Um, and like everybody shits when they die. It, 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 um, and it's one of those things that like, we don't talk about. So when you see movies where people are dying, there's like a certain image, there's like a, a, an emotional expectation that people are supposed to, play through and and you know what i mean like there's the kind of cliche of it and then like reality runs in the face of many cliches um in reality there are things like people shit their pants and then a goose comes and waddles in and craps on the floor and then waddles out and, mm-hmm. and there is something about the way that we conceptualize how you're supposed to behave and how you're supposed to feel and we kind of sanitize it and make it emotionally very tidy and there and real life is very untidy um, I don't know what point I'm trying to make with this other than like when you capture a sense of that, like absurdity and like a little bit of a sense of like real life isn't like that. Yeah. I, I think that that does go a long way in informing, like th- there is something to like a comedian sensibility of, of like real life isn't like that. At least for me, it's always in the back of my mind. I, I, I know I, I, I watch a lot of TV and things and I feel isolated or I, f- I just feel at a remove because I'm like, well, it's not really like that. Mm-hmm. But I guess we all disagree. When, and when somebody tells you something that is so, you're like, that is so real. You're like, yes. Like that's like, I don't know. Seinfeld has this thing about how like 
he always he's the guy who can't follow movie plots and when he you know when he like leaves a movie he's always saying to his friends like well who was that guy oh that was the guy from the beginning like and i was like yes that's exactly what it's like for me at least just for me to see a movie mm-hmm. you know i i can't it made me laugh so hard um you just feel like not quite alone yeah you know yeah uh yeah well there's like a, a little bit of an emperor's new clothes thing to that where where uh, I'm I'm about to get very like fucking college literature class, but uh, um, you know, so much of our experience of the world is mediated that you can have little perceptions and you can see things around you that are not reflected in in this mediated universe, and and so you kind of begin to feel like either you're seeing wrong or those are inconsequential details or like whatever it is, you're like out of the loop. And then when someone finally calls attention to shit that you've seen a million times, but nobody talks about, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be bad, horrible, taboo stuff. It, it can just be something as simple as like, Oh yeah, right. I never, I never remember, you know, I don't listen to the lyrics of songs either or like whatever. Right. When it calls attention to things that you've actually seen, you don't feel quite as crazy. Anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you feel a little bit more cur- courageous of like, oh, my senses work. Mm-hmm. My brain is working. Yeah. And maybe there are parts of me that I'm embarrassed about that I can start expressing, you know? Yeah. Like that, mo- like not being able to follow movies. I still can't. I mean, I have to watch sometimes, like I'm watching Fargo season two right now. And it's not even that hard to follow. But, you know, I'll watch one a night and I'll have to, I'm like, I, I need more than the recap at the yeah. end. I'm going to have, like, I don't have an, I don't have a memory left. That's my big problem right now. I really have no memory left. Yeah. I don't know if I like smoked it away or I'm just getting older, but I feel that yeah. you're in your thirties now. Yeah. And me too. Sorry. I, I, I can feel, no, thir- I love my thirties. You're, like, you're like, you're like your thirties. I like my, uh, I like where I'm at in my thirties. I just don't like what I'm afraid is happening to me. Oh Yeah. I'll tell you what I like about my 30s is I, I feel more comfortable as myself than I've ever felt. Yeah. I think I'm better looking than I've ever... I think I look, you look good really, now. You look really good thank right you. now. And I, it's not just the glasses. Thank you. Yeah. I, but I think, I think I'm about to hit my good looking peak. I think I'm pretty close to how good looking I'm ever going to be. Well, you got to look life. at photos of your dad. Is that... You mean... Yeah. Yeah. About. Or like roughly in that area. Okay. Um, well, you're never going to lose your hair, which... No, my hair's good. Oh, man. Knock on a plastic table. Hair. Holy cow. Yeah. But my teeth are fucked up. That was the exchange I got genetically. Really? I didn't yeah. ever notice that. I got bad teeth. Hmm. Who knew? But who? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, I can always keep my mouth closed. Just don't smile. That's that. No. Yeah. That's, that's why it. you never smile. Just don't smile. Oh, no. Now we know. That's it. I'm very happy all the time. I just don't want you to see how mangled my teeth are. Um, but, but... So I, I like my 30s. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of feel like, oh, I'm like mature. I feel like I'm ripe. Getting ripe. But I also definitely feel like... I don't have access to the same number of words that I used to have. Mm. It, it, like words are not as easily in my grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having more like mental misfires all the time of just like, eh, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I said that I did that. And okay. I'll take your word. I don't care. Oh, this is, that's how I live right now. Yeah. Just all the time. Um, yeah. I just try to act. Uh, I just smile. I smile. That's my thing. I smile a lot and it just gets me through a lot of situations. And I'm the opposite. I don't smile and that gets me through situations. Interesting. See, it's just a confidence thing. Look like you're... Uh Uh-huh. I think, going back to like recounting movie plots, you're a film school guy. I'm a film school guy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we've kind of like 
television has sort of addicted us to watching everything just for the story. And one of the things I used to love in film school was watching movies that I kind of understood what was going on with the story, but there were parts where I had to kind of give up a little bit. I couldn't exactly figure out the plot anymore, but that wasn't, the pleasure of the movie was not just in how well they're executing the story. The pleasure of the movie is in the way that it kind of brings you to this other world. It's right. like, it calls your attention to notice certain details that, that leave you with this resonance that you can't quite articulate. Like it moves you to have this experience that's just beyond, Oh, that's a well-crafted story that I could follow easily. Yeah. What was, um, I remember watching Nashville for the first time and being so blown away because I I almost like, I I didn't even have to, there's not much. It's like, there is a plot, but it's not, it's the pleasure is watching just the characters be themselves and, the virtuoso camera work and um, the sweep of it and, um, you know, the the huge important thing it's trying to say, but nobody's going out and just saying it. You yeah. know, it's just, you know, it's not, nobody's stating the premise. It's not like movies now. Um, and and, uh, and just, I was like, I'm just thinking like, oh, it's pure, pure, like pure cinema. Yeah. Um, and I, I never, I never get that feeling anymore. Although I don't see that many movies, to be fair. Yeah. Um, trying to think of the last great movie I saw. Uh, I don't know. I saw Hail Caesar, um, which is really fun, but kind of minor, minor Cohen, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I wish I could. Uh, did you see? Did you uh, you loved Mad Max, right? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I did. heard you saw it three times. Saw it three times. Yeah. When I heard that, I was like, oh, wow. Wow. That was like a... That meant something to me. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, uh, yeah, I saw it once and um, thought it was amazing. Um, and the fact that they did that all for real, they just drove cars in the desert. Yeah. It was yeah. kind of exciting. Yeah. It's, it, it, I'll tell you what, that's, it, we're getting like way off topic, but oh, well, what whatever. were we talking about? I don't even remember. So, yeah. Darkness and vulnerability. And oh. uh, um, it's actually the thing that's kind of sold me on Tom Cruise over the years. Uh, uh, is like in every one of his movies now, he does one insane stunt. Like he straps himself to a plane for a shot or, mm-hmm. or like climbs the tallest building in Dubai or something like that. And like, I really appreciate that. I'm like, oh, you're never really going to be a very good actor, Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, he's like, oh, you're giving us a thrilling spectacle to look at. You're yeah. putting yourself in harm's way so we can be amused by something that we're going to forget in two weeks. He's basically a magician. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I kind of respect that though. I'm like, oh, cool, great. You're you're like you've made an event happen, right? I mean, he could just be lazy yeah. and, and just have special effects and stuntmen, and but you know, at least he cares. Yeah, on some level. Um, what were we talking about though? Let's see. I'm trying to backtrack. We had uh, well, we were talking about horror and comedy. And oh yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of some great like horror comedies I've seen. Oh, 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 what was um, the Peter Jackson movie? Uh, Dead Alive? Dead Alive, yeah. Oh, my God. Just how go for broke that movie is with just shamelessly just trying to to gross you out. It's funny how much it constantly teeters back and forth, too. Something so gross, but then they pile it on to such excess that it becomes really funny. Yeah. And they pile it on to such excess that it becomes gross again. Uh-huh. So you're always on that kind of queasy line between being revolted and and just kind of like, okay, this is so... I, I'm totally detached from this now. 
Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I, I mean, I saw it probably 10 years ago, yeah. but I was like, this is great. Um, and just how insanely over the top it goes um, when, like, I think all the zombies are bum-rushing the house at the end, and yeah. he just goes on this rampage, and it's just um, so disgusting. Um, so wet. Uh, wet is the perfect word. Yeah. I, it's like, you know, there's something to be said. Like, you know, you watch some movies, and you just feel like they're embalmed already, yeah, yeah. you know? Like, there's just nothing visceral about them at all. So to see a movie just do pure visceral overkill, like, to me, was really refreshing. It's also it's also pretty funny. It's, you know, it's well-made. Um, it's not just, like... I mean, I tried watching Bad Taste, which is the one before that, mm-hmm. and I couldn't get through it. I was mm-hmm. just, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, what was the other movie... Um, Oh, I really like, you know what I really like? Uh, I've been reading um, some, like, horror novels. Um, I read this, like, I don't know, a year ago. Uh, It's called The Ruins. They made a really bad movie out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, The book's awesome. Um, It's just another book where it's just a pure visceral, like, these four college kids are trapped on this uh, mountain, and uh, they're starving to death, basically. And... uh, it's like 600 pages and uh you're just you're you feel like you are starving to death with them you feel the urgency like when they're down to their last half of a power bar you feel it in the pit of your stomach um and i i just that feeling just to feel something like that is really special yeah because i i don't often feel that way when i read or watch something Um, yeah yeah it's pretty rare that something would get to you that directly yeah um, and, and lead you to a place where you would feel that rotten and shitty about stuff too. It, it, again, it's like a vulnerability thing. It takes you right to that edge where you feel um, uh, that life is precious. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you know what I mean? That that, that it, it's something. And I don't mean precious in that like hug it and kiss it, but I mean precious in that it can easily be yes be eradicated. Yeah, you can leave the bubble. You can leave the bubble. Yeah, and, and that's where comedy comes back into it in that like <laughs> there's like a strength right like being able to laugh out of that context and be led to that be led to that feeling and mm-hmm. still find the funny in it there's something very yeah, um strength yeah it it, it it brings you strength yeah totally so so you have you bring a lot of vulnerability to performance and, and you're a guy who has some demons that you have exercised or, or, or have brought with you into your shows. How have you evolved? I know that you had mentioned earlier that you're, you're way more, you less want to be the smart, witty one. You're way more open to being the kind of dumb one or the vulnerable one. But how has that changed the way that you approach shows now? Um, well, I think, so going into a show uh, and feeling like you don't have to be smart is great yeah um i don't think that i mean every now and then like we there was a show two weeks ago where it was like 80 degrees in the theater and about halfway through my brain just stopped working and i was i was too dumb like that was the note um and you know that that doesn't happen that much um i i was just really hot i don't know like my i just can't stand heat Mm. um so uh when i go into a show now the feeling of like all I have to do is just be like um, receptive to this person on stage with me, um, like that's such a freeing feeling 
it's just, it puts me in a place of like, let's just see what happens, you know, let's see where it goes. And all I have to do is care about what this person is doing. Um, and that's such a, like, I can't go into a scene with a lot of like, I mean, like, like, like justify, uh, all these rules, like, uh, justify, um, uh, build, fill out the environment, like all these, all these like brain requests. Like I, I can't go into a scene with those. Um, I have to go into something I can do more like in my gut. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, like we worked with Emily Shapiro for God, like six months and it was like the best six months. So great. And she's coming back and we're really excited. Yeah. Um, but you know, her thing, she's very much on that level. It's just like, I mean, her, her basic note, I mean, she gives a lot of notes, but her basic note is just like love each other. Mm. And I can totally go into a show with that. That's the best feeling to go in with. Um, Cause I don't have to think about anything. Uh, and when we are in that mode, like all of those other things, like justify, like fill out the environment, like all these things, like they just, I just do them naturally. Yeah. Um, my, I allow, so it's just like not getting, it's like not jamming my own processes, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because it sounds like over time, what's happened is you've just had less to prove. It, yeah. it, it has become, because it, what you're describing is going from a show where you need to be the smart, witty one. So, so there's a perception that you need other people to have of your performance. There's a, a takeaway that you want them to have. Mm -hmm. and, and over time, shifting that into, I need to care about the person around me. And, and so you've just kind of shifted that consciousness off of yourself and put it onto this one single moment that you're stepping into and letting yourself be as smart or as dumb as you are. Yeah. And, 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 and there's something about that. There's a kind of transparency that comes with that too. Because when you're trying to be smart, this is an interesting thing because you get the note all the time to like play it smart. Yeah. I give that note frequently. Um, um, but when you're trying to be smart, there's a defensiveness to that as well. There is a thing where you're not letting yourself be transparent. You're not letting people see you on stage. You're, you're, you're bringing this other character, but it's not a character that you're creating or committing to. It's a character that you're wrapping around yourself so that people don't see the, the nasty parts. Right. And that character oftentimes gets in the way of you and your scene partner because you care more about maintaining that character. You care more about this perception that people are going to have about your, your mind than you do about, okay, why am I here with you right now? Why are we on stage showing this to people? Right. What about this is worthwhile that people should, should be watching this? Yeah, totally. I, I, like, honestly, like a, a, a one-word answer with an emotion behind it, with a true honest emotion behind it, is funnier, often funnier than a clever, a clever answer yeah. um, or something that I, I don't know. I've just noticed that in myself. Um, I don't know. I struggle with words a lot. I feel like, uh, like I want the right words. Um, and, uh, and then if I start thinking, if, if I literally start thinking about words, like I'm done, like I'm out of the scene. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't, I can't do that. Um, so I, uh, I'd rather project like a, um, my favorite thing to do is project a like uh, almost like absurd sort of like innocence and excitedness um, in a scene uh, because uh, it sets me up like if someone joins me in that like that's great and I can like we can we can keep going and heighten that or if somebody challenges then I can get really sad um, 
and it's it's like it's like it, in that innocent like unguardedness that I find like a lot of a lot of power. Yeah, yeah. You have an amazing ability to to be innocent and jaded at the same time. <laughs> I think that comes across in a lot of your characters that there's there's a, this energy to them that's extremely open and and uh, um, kind of virginal, and then on the other side, there there is that thing of like malice is in your eyes. <laughs> Which makes for like a beautiful marriage uh, uh, in an improv show because you're kind of hoping for that. You're hoping for like with the innocence, it's just kind of like, oh, there's like a lack of resistance, a lack of guardedness, a lack of defensiveness. But then with that little bit of malice, it's it. it, But you're also going to be stepping close to those things that are going to be like, oh, okay, I I paid my money to see people be uh, uh, a little bit rotten. Yeah, you know, you just remind this. I haven't thought about this in years, but. My comedy sports coach, um, like they wrote little sentences about all the new players to put on the website and he was describing each of them. And he said, um, like he's something like Andy, Andy improvises the way some people drive, like a little cautiously at first and then drives, uh, swerves into incoming traffic uh-huh. on purpose. And I was like, I was like, when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I like that. But I haven't thought about it in years. And you just kind of reminded me of that. Yeah. Um, I do like, you're right. I do like to cause trouble. Um, yeah, I do. I do like to, like, I will just go for it. If if there's something out there and I feel like it's being tiptoed around a little bit, um, I'll just go for it. Cause, um, sometimes I've had moments where nobody goes for it and it's kind of a bummer. So, um, yeah, I think I'll, yeah. How um, how has playing with Ariana Grande affected you? Um, it's been amazing. I, in a way, for a while, I used to think that they were actually because they're all so good mm. and everyone can carry a scene. I used to think that I was like, oh, am I getting like a little worse? You know, because mm-hmm. I just don't have to do as much. Um, but um, I think now, um, I think like. Uh, um, I feel like I'm finding my voice a little bit um, because for a while, you know, for, for well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I should have anticipated this question and thought of an answer. It's not like there isn't any one answer to it. it yeah. You, you know, like your experience with people is multidimensional and it changes over time. Uh-huh. It's definitely made me, I've definitely, I have done shows with this team that I, like, are, like, the shows that I, when I was first starting out, I would see teams do and be like, I wish I could do a show like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a show where, like, you didn't come in with a form in mind and you ended up doing something so crazy and unexpected. Um, like, we did this show where these p- people were playing Clue and, um, you know, and, and the kids were back from college just for you and... Uh, my parents, played by Amy and uh, Matt Saletti, wanted to play Clue with us. And I was just like, can I have some time with my friends? And then they started, like, cosplaying Clue with us. Like, they were coming in. And um, and then, uh, like, my aunt came in, dressed up as a maid. And then Jesse and my uncle just knocked on the door. And they opened it. And it came out and was a dead body. And it started this whole show of just, like, us playing this game of Clue like, you know, but me hating it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so much fun. It was so much fun. And it just like, I just, it was a show where everybody in the team played an equal role. 
and uh, everybody was at the top of their game. Um, the ball never dropped once. Uh, and a- after that show, it was like, oh my god! Like when I was like starting out in Philly, I would see t- teams do shows like this, and I would just think I could never do this. And here I am right now. I just did it, which is a great feeling. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think yeah, they've made me feel uh, more confident. Um, and, uh, they made me feel like I'm, I'm like at a point where like we can do what we want if we just decide to do it, you know, which is a great feeling. Um, I feel like I have agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, um, two more things I want to talk about. Uh, the Mother's Day show is one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you describe the Mother's Day show? Yeah, the Mother's Day show uh, is a show. Uh, we've done it two years on Mother's Day. Uh, four improvisers do uh, duo sets with their moms. And uh, it's been a really big success so far. Um, they Time Out New York has... Got cre- a great write-up. Yeah, there's... there's really nice of them um this the idea for the show my mom and i actually this is true my mom did improv before i did Hmm. she was in um an intergenerational improv troupe out of temple university so it was like high school age to like 80s um and they would put on these uh shows that were funny um and uh yeah there was this one woman Ginny, that my mom really loved and um I just remember it's the first time I think this is the first time I've seen line saw live improv. Um, the, uh, the they were doing a house and the moderator was like, "All right, so what's in a house? A mom, a dad?" And then someone said, "Cat." She just pointed to Ginny, and Ginny, this old woman, just went. And it was so like she. I'm trying to describe what I'm doing. Kind of like making a cat-like gesture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so it was so funny. Yeah, I just because I, I didn't think she was going to do that. Yeah. I really didn't. But anyway, so uh, my mom after I started performing in Philly, my mom said, uh, "Let's um, let's do a show together." I think I don't know if she suggested it or I suggested it. So we did a show, um, a 25 minute show, just us. Uh, and it was really fun. So when I moved to Philly, I was like, "We got to keep doing this, but it can't be just like one person. We got to get more people." So the first show we had, among other people, John Bander and his mom, which was his mother. Not only had she never seen him perform improv, she had never seen improv, period. She yeah. didn't really know what it was. So they did this show where um, it was just constantly like she was just like questioning like the rules of improv, you know, like like he would call her like Margaret and she would say, why are you calling me Margaret? I'm your mother. <laughs> I'm loving it, loving every minute of it. Uh, and then halfway through the set, she's just doing that. And halfway through the set, she just turns to the audience and goes, and to think I was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, uh, yeah, we did it again. We did it, we're going to do it again in May, I, I hope. Um, uh, but it's just, it's just really... Um, it, I like it because it's it's just like, I mean, in my mind, when I pictured the show, it was people just letting their moms do whatever they yeah. want to do, yeah. which is exactly what John did. So it's just like this perfect present to your mom. Um, and uh, it's just, yeah, it just has such, I actually didn't realize how po- like popular it was going to be. I just thought it was going to, I just thought it was a fun idea, but it really, I don't know, it touches on something. 
I don't know if I can define it, but people, I remember what people were really like, just looked really happy coming out of the lobby. It made me feel great. I think people brought their moms and it was very sweet. Well, it's incredibly sweet. And, and it, it punctures one of the fears and anxieties about being an improviser, which is, uh, it's hard to justify to adults what it is that you're doing. So like we improvisers tend to make ourselves out to be way more like self-important and, and than we probably are. And there is something like everybody has that story about going home for the holidays and, and having to like explain improv to your family. Yeah. So there's something that nicely punctures that by like bringing those worlds together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, um, what is it like playing with your mom? Like, is it like stepping on stage with a fellow performer or, or do you feel like... I was totally, she, she, I mean, I was totally, it was great. She's, I didn't feel nervous for myself or for her at all. Um, and she doesn't even perform that much. She's just, um, she's just, my mom is like a, is like a cool cucumber. Um, she's really, you know, when things are getting really emotional, like she's the master of writing this like level headed, confident, email where she's making her point but she's being like really she's still being really um diplomatic uh she's just she's just great at that and it carries over to how she is as a person in life Mm. um and uh so i never once felt even though she told me she was so nervous i mean once we stepped out there it was great and she also like we know each other really well like I, like I'm saying this on a recording, but she kind of is my best friend. Mm. Like you know, it's just it's just the way it is. That's cool. Yeah, right. No shame there. That's, that's cool. cool, right? Yeah, that's cool. Evan thinks it's cool. Uh, yeah. So uh, we just we're, and we you know we talk to each other almost every day on the phone. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was just a natural space for us to be. Um, and I think we're gonna do it again in May. Cool. Yeah. Keep an eye out for that on the website, friends. Yeah. Uh, this job that you have that we cannot discuss, <laughs> uh, um, how has your brain changed since working as a professional comedy person? Um, you know, it really, I'm actually not a professional comedy person. I'm a professional researcher. Mm-hmm. So, um, we got that Forrest Whitaker joke. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I get that. That wasn't the one that got on air. Um, uh, but, uh, it's, I feel like going to a, just because I used to freelance and things. So I feel like going to a job every day has just made me feel more like an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I am in some ways uh, less confident as a comedian mm. just because I'm in a place where um, there's a lot of people who are professional comedians and, and I am not. So mm. just it's just, even though there's like the hierarchy is not at all pronounced and everyone's super friendly, um, you know, it's just like, oh, well, I'm still down, you know, I'm still down here in the basement. I'm yeah. not in the basement. But uh, so there's there's some of that that just I can't, like I can't not have that affect me in some ways, even though I think it's stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I um, I am reading a ton of professional comedy every day and um, fact checking and things like that, and uh, that's got to be getting into me somehow. Yeah, um, it's. I think it's reawoken my love of wordplay mm-hmm. a little bit, which I don't really do that much in, in improv. Um, but I used. I remember when I was in college, and I used to love puns and wordplay, 
especially when we had AOL Instant Messenger and you would leave your away message. I used to have some really good ones. Um, so that's been fun, and it's been f- it's like my new favorite hobby now is trying to write jokes again yeah. <laughs> to pitch. Yeah. It's great. It's a great way to fill time. Yeah, better than video games. Do you have a like a, a set technique to it, or or? Um, yeah, uh, I'll set up, just think of a setup and yeah. then try to find a punchline. Okay. Yeah. Can that's, you give me like an example of like a setup that you come up with? Um, yeah, let me think of, uh, oh, okay. So this is the one that got on air. Um, so it was like a, a confession, you know, he's giving like a, uh, confession into a confessional booth and the audience is like the priest. That's the way it looks. So, um, and they're jokes, obviously. So, uh. I just thought of, um, I saw something, so I said something. But the thing I said wasn't the thing I saw. <laughs> so I was just like, I thought of, you know, set up first and then joke second. Yeah. Yeah. Something familiar. Yeah. I have a book now on joke writing and how you're supposed to do it or how this guy thinks you're supposed to do it. And he, for topical jokes, um, he, like, you have your setup and then you think of, there are like two like disparate things in the setup. There's like something and then something that shouldn't go with it, but did um, like a man sh- uh, uh, threw an alligator through the drive through window of a Wendy's. And then you make um, true story, by the way, that is a true story. Yeah. Yeah. But that wasn't the example that you, it's just something I remember. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you make a list uh, like, so there's Wendy's and alligators. You make like all these associations that you have with Wendy's and all these associations you have with alligators. Okay. And you try to find a connection between two of those things. Okay. Um, yeah. That's that's the very like pen and paper way to do it. Okay. So like Dave Thomas. Um, Dave Thomas. Yeah. Uh, uh, adoption. Because uh, Wendy was adopted. Oh. Um, that's all my associations with Wendy's. Uh, red hair. Get get a little more general. Right. Ponytails. Ponytails. Um, the Bayou. The Bayou. Uh, crocodiles. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know if this is gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not oh, okay. Well, this is a f- fabulous, very interesting technique. Yeah. Uh, um. Oh, there's one more thing I want to ask you. I'm blanking on it right now. There's that 30-something brain going yeah. for you right now. Um, it's not coming. Is it, uh, is it improv? Something improv related? No, but that seems like a good thing to fold back into, right? Uh-huh. Uh, where do you want to go from here? What are your goals? That's I've never asked anybody that question uh-huh. on this podcast. Really? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'd love to be a professional comedy writer. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a total dream. Yeah. Yeah. That would be something where my parents would be really proud of me. Was this the goal when you did comedy sports? Did you like... No, I had no idea. Yeah. I thought, um, I had no idea what I wanted. I, you know, and and before I even got the Colbert job, I kind of had resigned myself to my professional and comedy lives being separate. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just got into this like weird situation where all of my professional work had actually was completely applicable to this comedy job. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it just kind of, I just got really lucky. Yeah. Um, so now that I'm kind of in the place where I want to be, yeah, I just, I want to be part of the creative side of it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know. It could be a long wait. But, um, uh, it's preparation has to meet opportunity. That's exactly right. And what's interesting is you never know what you're being prepared for. That's right. It's one of the things that's like most fun about about um, spending so many years in the trenches of improv comedy is like you kind of find that you've accidentally prepared yourself for a lot of different things somehow. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it's kind of a cliche, but like, I, you know, I'm now that I'm, I'm, it's, it's so easy to get along with people at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know it's because of just my improv training. Yeah. But that's a, that's a huge thing. Yeah. Cause that goes back to, to wanting to be the smart, clever one on stage. Yes. And having that melt away over time. Yes. That smart, clever one that you want to be on stage is the same character that you carry around in social situations and work situations that gets in the way of all kinds of shit. Because yeah. it's more about it's more about the perception than than the way you're actually interacting with people. And how beautiful is improv that it literally gives you a stage to work through that. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Um it really is. And you don't realize how amazing it is until until you know, in retrospect. Um because I, I could because you know coming. I mean, I was at Johns Hopkins where everyone, you know, a creative writing. You know, when I went to Hopkins, I met with my creative writing advisor, and this is before I decided to double major in film, and and he was he said he's like well you know welcome to Hopkins blah 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 um, he's like now you know when you were in high school um, your work was being compared to um, everybody else in the class like now we're going to compare it to uh, William Faulkner. And I was, and it just was like poison in my brain. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I, you know, it set me, and I eventually just had to double major in film because at least there was something that I could connect with, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, you know, just it makes you, it, it, I don't know, it creates this need for pretension um, that I really didn't know how to shake off until years later. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, you get the importance bug. Yeah, you have to be doing and saying things that are important, uh-huh. and 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 when you don't have anything important to say, because who does when you're in college? Very few people, I think. Mm-hmm. Then you adopt this importance personality where you just like take everything very seriously, and and you know what I mean. You are important. Yeah. Uh, um. And God damn it, is that not fun for yeah. anybody? Yeah. Because the, the you think it works. I I felt like it would work on my. Uh, class colleagues classmates right. i don't know what but like anyone who was a literal like i used to hang out with these graduate students and like one of them just was like you need to stop talking yeah at one point yeah, um, yeah. and i got really angry but i was like eh, yeah it's probably right you could you get, it's that emperor's new clothes thing you get so trapped up in in hearing the sound of your own voice as you're describing the emperor's new clothes yeah you know what I mean? Just to kind of like show off how much you see it. Oh, yes, I see it too. Yes, it's regal and purple and flowing. And Yeah, well, it's also 90% of film criticism right now. Yeah. I can't stand it. Yeah. Um, it's just how beautifully you can describe a thing that was there. But I don't know. You have to cherish. When you find a good film critic, you have to cherish that person. Who do you, anyone you like right now? Currently? Uh, no. Um... I was reading a little bit of Film Crit Hulk recently, and he's got some some pretty pointed stuff to say. What's like his name? Him. Film Crit Hulk. Is that a website? 
uh, no, he he writes for now. I don't remember what he writes for, but he he writes criticism for for this website. He, he, the thing is, he's a Hollywood guy. He works professionally. No one knows his real identity, oh. and he writes it as if he were the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> so it's all caps. That's his thing. All of his reviews are in all caps because he's so hulked out. Is it? But yet, also, it's, it's very insightful. Smart. It's very insightful. Oh wow, he's very good. Um, she is dead, but Pauline Kael has always been my oh, favorite. Oh my god. Always. Yeah, I I feel like finding Pauline Kael was like a turning point in my life. You know, I used to re- we used to read reviews in college, and I I should get one of her books because I just that was another person where you read her and you feel like oh I'm not insane. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Wow, Pauline yeah. Kael. I tried reading Richard Brody a little bit. Yeah, in New Yorker, and I I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. It when when you find somebody who is like genuinely insightful and call, enables you to appreciate something that you couldn't see before or calls your attention to something that you did see but didn't realize that you saw it yeah. or, or let it show out, you really got to prize that person yeah. because they're really helping you to think yeah. at, at, at the, to think your best. Um, <laughs> I, for work that I can't talk about now, I um, sometimes go to um, pre, like pre-release screenings mm-hmm. just if there's a guest who's been in one of the movies. And um, I have now twice been in an elevator with Sandy Kenyon. Uh-huh. And um, it's just, you know, nice guy. Uh, but it's funny to hear him talk about movies sometimes because I, I, I feel like he, like he's talking about the movie and he's just like listing adjectives. Like, you know, that he, I, and I wonder if these are adjectives he's going to use in his review or not. But it's, I don't know. It just makes me laugh. It's, it seems like a kind of a thing he would do. What I, what I love about, Pauline Kael's work is that she wouldn't describe the movie so much as she had this amazing ability to describe what effect it had on her. Yeah. And and to relate it to whatever else about life and politics and society and, and philosophy and whatever whatever it related to. But she had an amazing ability to to recognize the imprint it made on her. And yeah. so it wasn't just describing this thing that you had just seen. It, it she could talk very, very intelligently about uh, uh, um, uh, how it speaks to you. Yeah. And, and that's like, I mean, that's a thing that criticism can do that not a lot of people are either able or willing to do. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't like reviews that just compare the movie to other recent movies. Yeah. Like there's no, it's too, there's no perspective there. Um, yeah. Well, she her thing was so far off topic. We'll end this in a second, but I, I love talking about Paul and Kel. Yeah. Her, her thing was, as a critic, you're fighting the forces of advertising. They're pumping all this money into selling you on this product, whether it's good or bad, mm-hmm. that you just end up kind of taking it because you're inundated with advertisement. So your job as a critic is to cut through the bullshit and, and, and say when something is really not speaking to you, but you've kind of bought the ticket so you have to take the ride call that out not let yourself just be seduced by lots of advertising but primarily the job is to find what's new for people that that they're not seeing that they're not relating to either because it's a new experience or because the studios aren't backing it up because it's too whatever um and 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 communicate it to people in a way where they get excited to have new artistic experiences right which i think is like Artists typically hate critics, but when you find a good critic, I'm usually more entertained by reading a good critic than half the stuff they're criticizing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. Because a critic is a uh, proxy for a viewer in yeah. a way. You know, this is they're on your side. I mean, ostensibly. So, um, yeah, you you I, I can identify more with a person's response to a film than to the film itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I also think a lot of critics now are a little afraid to trash movies because mm-hmm. um, then they'll get disinvited from screenings and celebrity interviews that they need to uh, sell their their publications. That's interesting. That's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's been going on for a long time. Hollywood insider information from Andy <laughs> Moskowitz, who works for a show which cannot be named. Oh, no. Andy, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You too, man. Lewis. Yeah, thanks very much. Take care. And thank you guys for listening. This has been the podcast. Thank you to our producer, Evan Ford Barden, our engineer, Grant Michael Goldberg, our executive producer, Ed Herpsman. Thank you to Pauline Kale and Elvis Mitchell and all of the film critics out there who are fighting the good fight. Uh, and thank you to all of you for listening. We sure do appreciate it. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a likable rating on you iTunes or YouTube or whatever you guys are into these days. Uh, uh, we're not on YouTube, are we? No, we're not, right? Okay. Well, go on YouTube and write something nice about us and other people's posts. Send them our way. You know, be happy they did. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, Andy Moskowitz. Thank you. Bye, friends. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.